do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Mikey and Nikki from 1976 with my distinguished guest, Jeremy Hirsch. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. This week, I have my wonderful guest, Jeremy Hirsch, on the show. Jeremy, thanks for being here. Hi, I'm so honored, and I'm really glad that we're doing this film. So um, this week, we're talking about the film Mikey and Nikki. It's an Elaine May directed and written feature from 1976. Jeremy, what were your thoughts this time? My dad recommended it to me when I was like 13-ish, maybe. I remember liking it, but then, you know, this was like my first time seeing it as an adult. And I, I think it's like such incredible writing and and directing and, and really like, I, I keep thinking about it in terms of like the genre of like gangster movies. And it's funny cause like I, that already had been a well-established genre, but I guess, I don't know, people like they, they associate um, Scorsese with it. And most of his came out after this. Um, but I think it's like, in some ways, it's like, it's taking like the themes of those movies that are often like really long and sprawling at times hitting you over the head. And it's like a, this like stripped down version that's like subtle and like trusts the audience to like get things without hitting you over the head. And I, and I love, I love that you said on the um, description, like that it's about toxic masculinity, because I think yeah. I, that's how I see it as well. Well, it's I'm so glad you said all that, because for me, I had never seen this film before. And the reason I chose to watch it was because when we were talking about like, oh, well, what do we, what do you want to do? Um, I've never really explored a lot of Elaine May's work before. Like she's someone who I've pretty much only seen like Heaven Can Wait and like some of the work that she's been uncredited for doing, you know, like Tootsie and things like that. So I'd never really seen an Elaine May directed feature and that had always been something I had wanted to do and meant to do. So I'm really glad I had the opportunity to watch it. That being said, it was very difficult for me to watch. I felt very uncomfortable watching it. I think it's a smart film, um, but I think it is really, really hard to watch like toxic masculinity thriving and not necessarily being like, like judged upon. Do you know what I mean? Like that's a hard thing to watch. Yeah, like it's not necessarily being like explicitly condemned. Is that what you're yes, saying? Yes. Yeah. Because like, 
for example, Dogfight, right? Another female-directed film came out in the 90s. That pretty much shows you flat out, like, look how shitty toxic masculinity is. Like, look what you could have versus what is. It's like that idea. And this doesn't really judge it. It's just like, look at this story. Look at this picture. Think what you want. And so I think that's a really interesting take. But it's hard to watch. Yeah. I mean, I agree that it's hard to watch. It's definitely like it's and and like you're often really close up in it, you know, and there's not a lot. There's not stuff like, you know, distancing music or something like how Scorsese will like create irony through using like kind of upbeat music uh, opposite like horrific imagery or whatever. I actually, I mean, I do think the film condemns them. And I think that she's just trusting the audience to be smart enough to like make that leap and like that will what that will get it you know i think peter falk's performance is so great in it that i'm actually wondering because it's like even after i know that he's lying and like that ostensibly like the 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 like being so sweet and caring to uh the other guy is is like just in order to to like lure him into this trap right but he's so, especially in like that first 10, 15 minutes of like, where he's like physically like calming him down. And even when he goes out to get the milk or whatever, like, I don't even know if that's like medically actually like helpful, but. I looked it up, it is. I pressed pause and I looked it up and they're like, dairy provides a lining. Like he's so sweet that I'm like, there is a part of him that does love him or something like that. Like it has to be real, but then it's like maybe the manipulation of this like character and the performance is like so good that I actually was like, I'm like defending him. I'm like, well, like, you know, you know what I mean? Like that it worked on me as well. Like I was manipulated. Yeah. The reason I think why, why he does actually love him underneath it all. There's two reasons. One at the end, he, keeps the gunman away from him. He's choosing streets where he thinks Nikki won't be. And then two, he lies to his wife about the watch, about who broke the watch. So to me, that says that he really does love Nikki. That was just what I took from it. And then his face at the end. He's come into this to fuck him over, but then he's he's second, uh, he's having doubts about it. So let me do a plot synopsis too, because I bet at home you're like, wait, hold on. If you have not watched this, you're like, what the hell? So. Mikey and Nikki, very interesting film. Um, it starts off, we, we see this guy, Nikki, and his door is like bolted, right? The first thing we see is a bolted door. And he grabs a gun and we kind of see a newspaper thing about like small time bookie killed or something like that. And he appears very agitated and he calls his buddy for help. His buddy comes over. His buddy is Peter Falk. And I should mention John Cassavetes. I always wonder if I say it right. I get scared about saying his name. Am I saying John Cassavetes right? Yeah. Okay. I, that's how don't, I would say Don't you it. have yeah. fears about it? Or you're like, I think I'm it, saying this right. Because <laughs> it's like the correct way would be like, Cassavetes. Yeah, like. and you're like, John, sorry. <laughs> John Cassavetes. Cassavetes. Um, how do you say it in Greek? Cassavetes. Um, well, that's like, okay. I've joked with my friend who lives in Italy. I'm like, in Italy, does Skype have two syllables? Like Skipe, maybe? Yeah. Skipe. John Cassavetes is Nikki. He's the one who called Mikey. You can tell he's very paranoid. Even like communicating with Mikey, he doesn't really tell him where he is. And he like has this system of getting Mikey to figure out where he is. Uh, Mikey eventually finds Nikki, has to break down his door to get in. 
which is important because at the end of the film, Nikki's trying to break down Mikey's door and he can't, and it's full circle writing moment. We find out that Nikki is terrified that the mob has a hit on him, that he is going to be killed because he stole money from the mob. And at first we feel sorry for Nikki and we're on Nikki's side. Um, but once Mikey kind of convinces him to leave the apartment, which I guess he doesn't do. Nikki's just like, I need air. And then he runs out. Like, he's so paranoid all the time. And then he's like, just kidding. I'm not going to be paranoid at all while I'm out on the town with you. Mikey definitely, I think, has the idea, right? Or, or, or it's... Because Mikey just was going to get him the milk. That was it. Mikey brought him right. the milk and he's like, have the milk. And then Nikki's like, I need air. I need air. I need air. And then he like runs out of the apartment. And you're like, wait, huh? <laughs> okay. And then Nikki makes them switch everything to be safe. So he's like, give me your jacket. Give me your watch. I'll give you my gun. So they make this arrangement, whatever. They all leave. We find out when they go to a bar that Mikey is in on the hit. That there really is indeed a hit out for Nikki from the mob. And that Mikey is in on it and helping to arrange it. And it's a little heartbreaking. But Nikki doesn't find out. But Nikki doesn't find out. Well, but Nikki suspects something's up. Because he sees Mikey looking at the clock a lot. And he is suspicious of Mikey wanting to call his wife every now and then. So I think Nikki, I feel like he kind of has a sense or something that it's that this is what's going on, skeptical. but not totally. Yeah. He's skeptical. Yeah. And even like when he's Mikey's entering, he's like, is someone else with you? Like, that's the whole thing with like the door. Um, which is crazy to me because when John Cassavetes as Nikki is entering people's homes, he like breaks through their doors. He breaks their chains. So it's really interesting to me that he's got that chain on his wall and is being so like, oh, don't come in. But then he had, he does not have that regard for anyone else. <laughs> he busts through everyone else's door like a total asshole. So anyway, that's where this plot is going. Basically through the course of the movie, we find out what a huge asshole Nikki is. Nikki is the worst. He's this awesome, charismatic personality that takes whatever he wants, does not consider anybody else or their feelings or their personhood. A deeply disturbing scene for me personally uh, is when they go to his like girlfriend's house. So Nikki has a wife who he's separated from. I don't think they're fully divorced yet, but they're, they're, she's living on the other side of town or whatever. And he has a girlfriend and he goes over to her house and treats her just despicably. And kind of like makes her have sex with him in front of his friend. And it's sort of, it's like, it's a gray area of consent. Um, Cause she's kind of saying no, no, no. But then she's like, tell me you love me. I love you. It's like very messed up. Well, at the very least it's coercive. At the yeah. very yeah. least. Like it's, it's disgusting. It's disturbing, I think. Um, yeah. And then he tries to kind of get Peter Falk to join in on it. I warmed her up for you. I think he says, ew, ew, ew. It's really gross when Peter Falk does try to hook up with this woman, um, but I'm plot digressing again. They both display acts of violence. One appears to be more kind, and that's the Peter Falk character, and one appears to be more erratic and intense, and that's Nikki, but deep down, they both kind of do disgusting things um, or have, like, flare-ups of temper. Like, they, they both hit women in this, and they both, like, get violent with people in this. Um, they just have different ways of showing it all the time. Um, so anyway, we leave this apartment scene that really kind of disturbed me. And Mikey and Nikki end up having a huge fight um, where Mikey feels like Nikki has always gotten everything good his whole life and is always trying to like show off and like just take. And then Nikki 
kind of feels like Mikey is really just a loser and lame and not really worth anything. And he breaks the watch that Mikey had given him, which was a very important watch. Um, it was Mikey's watch that his dad gave him. And we find out it was, you know, briefly owned by his his dead brother. It's like a meaningful thing that Nikki just kind of destroys. And uh, they go their separate ways. Uh, Mikey bumps into the hitman on the way home. He tries to discourage him from following Nikki. Eventually, Nikki finds his way back to Mikey's house where a hitman is waiting and Mikey won't let him in the door. So Nikki gets shot on the doorstep. And you don't really feel bad about it as an audience because at this point, you're pretty grossed out by Nikki. You don't really like Nikki. Um, so it's kind of, it's this complicated story. It's a lot of very um, real, like real feeling scenes. Like they don't use a lot of fake lighting and they don't use a lot of, they use different ways of storytelling, uh, especially she tend Elaine May as the director tends to focus on people who aren't speaking, right? So she loves to get like a full reaction shot. And I was wondering, it was because they had sound issues with the film. One of the reasons this film was so delayed in being released was Elaine May had editing troubles because of the audio syncing up. Um, and I was wondering if that was really a choice uh, that she was making or if it was because the audio was messed up. Either way, it's a really cool choice. So I wanted to point that out. That's so funny because that's like totally the like a huge thing that was talked about in film school was just like don't be the people that are you know always editing where it's like we're seeing this person while she's talking then we cut and we're seeing this person while they're talking like so that's so funny that because it's like it's in a way so then it's like you know, the ideal thing is to do the opposite. I was just noticing that and going like, oh my God, how cool is this? Nikki's giving this kind of like big speech and we're not even on him at all. We're only on Peter Falk for this whole time. How yeah. cool is that? But then again, I was like, wait, but was it because of the sound? I think it works great. That's so funny. I did not know that. So we can talk about like how difficult this film was to make. Apparently it's actually kind of sad that Elaine, Elaine May was discounted as a director for like a decade because of this film. During its making, it had like a 1.8 million budget, but they spent like 4 million. And it's because Elaine May went through, she shot 1.4 million feet of film, which is almost three times as much that was shot for Gone with the Wind. This movie is an hour and 46 minutes. <laughs> so the reason she used so much film was because she would keep three cameras running just like forever because she wanted to catch spontaneous reactions. And there's this story of like a new camera operator showing up one day and like minutes after the actors had left, he yelled cut. And Elaine May was like, why the hell did you yell cut? And he was like, well, because the actors aren't here. And she's like, yes, but they could come back. Like they might come back in the room and then what? That's awesome. Like, was there a lot of improv? Because I actually, like as much as I've seen this movie two times like I don't actually know anything of like the of, so of like how it was conflicting made reports about like interesting the the degree of improv yeah some people say there was not a lot and some people say that there was and I think for me in my mind if she's shooting that much film for spontaneous reactions there has to be improv involved in that don't you think and just knowing about now knowing about Elaine May's ideas of improv like her versus Mike Nichols. So Elaine May, is, she came up through the comedy world with Mike Nichols and they were a team called Nichols and May. And part of like 
their spectacularness was that they were all about improvisation and coming up with sketches like through improvisation. And she was apparently very brave about this and really into exploring and coming up with the improvisation ideas. And Mike Nichols was more of like the editor and more of like, I want to know where this scene is going. I want to know what's going to happen. So that's why they paired well together. And well, that's one of the reasons they paired well together. So I would imagine as a director that she would be more likely to continue with like an exploration kind of vibe just based on knowing who she was. That's what I would think. Also, people at home, I should say Jeremy Hirsch is a director. Like we have a real director on the show today. (laughs) As a director who, you know, I want to make serious, heavy, artful films. And I also have so much respect for comedy and comedians and you know comedic actors that she's like a she's a hero of mine and i you know i I got to see her act on stage uh a few years ago in lila neugebauer's production of the kenneth lonergan play the waverly gallery and she was incredible and she won a tony for that performance yeah she and she's like still doing amazing work and um I honestly haven't really read much of what's been written about this movie like ever, but like I might wonder if there, due to sexism, if there had been, you know, people who assumed like, well, I'm sure that like Cassavetes like brought a lot to the table or whatever, like in terms of concepts or, or, you know, his dialogue or whatever, and like sort of taking the authorship somewhat away from her and like, so the improv thing. It's funny that you mentioned that because that's 100% one of the things that people say online. I'm going to be real with you. One of the things I looked up was, why do people like this film so much? Because <laughs> oh. I was kind of like, I don't know. But in the article, it did say stuff about John Cassavetes, um, but it also talked about toxic masculinity. So viewing it more through that lens helped me process the film a lot because I was having a hard time watching it, but like viewing it as an exploration of that, like how you would view Promising Young Woman, you know, and you're like, ah, this is an exploration of like the predator uh, being predated, being like super yeah. predator, no, you I know? No, I think that is a word, so, yeah. Yeah, I liked uh, viewing it more through that lens when I put that on. Uh, but yeah, there are people that kind of give John Cassavetes some credit that who knows if he really is owed for this movie. John Cassavetes, by the way, if you don't know at home, he was a famous director in his own right. He often worked with Peter Falk, uh, and he has he's kind of credited as being like a really great early independent American filmmaker. He loved to um, finance his own films, um, and he's a little bit Brando-like in his just visceral intensity that he brings to things and his focus on trying to be very real. That's my, like, John Cassavetes in a nutshell. It, you know, this is very different. Cause I, I mean, like, his movies aren't about, like, criminals, no. right? Yeah. They're and about, like, like, women and marriages. Yeah, relationships and character driven. And, and um, I guess, like, I'll say, like, kind of going back to what I, what I already kind of alluded to is, like, I just feel like I... I feel like I'm subjected to so many people talking about how great of a movie Goodfellas is and like the Irishman and stuff. And I think those are great. I mean, I went to the IFC center, I crossed my legs and I enjoyed the Irishman and I uncrossed them after four hours and left. And I was like, that was, you know, it was good. But like, I just think that this is the idea that is like baked into all of these people praising Goodfellas and stuff is that like, criminals and like mafia type 
men are like inherently interesting. If, if you accept that premise that they're interesting, I'm like, well, I actually think that, yeah, this movie is like, she's just using the bare, it's like raw materials of like filmmaking. So it's like the writing, it's like, I'm gonna juxtapose a scene where he's like being so fucking tender. And in the it's the beginning, so you don't really know. You just are like, oh, this is his friend who cares about him, is trying to help him. And it's like this unbelievably like sweet scene of like these two men, like basically like, you know, spooning. And then immediately after he goes to get the like half and half for him. Cause he has like a stomach thing. He's like at like a diner, like being like, can I, can I buy half and half here? And the guy's like, basically like, no, we don't sell that. And they're going back and forth, like figuring out like, well, okay. And he's like, okay, if I like pay for like 10 coffees, can you give me 10? Uh, and, and the guy's like, yes, okay. He's like about to do it. And then he just starts like beating him up and being like, it's not like subtle violence. It's like, he's like fucking crazy, you know? And later we see them wrestle. So we like see these, like the ultimate like tenderness or whatever that, that men are capable of juxtaposed with like, just, you know, brutality and like animalistic, you know, craziness. I just think this movie's like all about Peter Falk. Like, I think he's like so amazing in this and that's the like nuanced character. To me, this is not a mob film. This is not a gangster film. All of the online sites say like a gangster film, but to me, it was like so much a film about this relationship. And it is a lot of juxtapositions, like what you were saying, because it's almost like nothing is exactly as you would expect it to be from the way we know or think of a gangster film. So like the hitman they hire, is just a normal guy. It's Ned Beatty. They wanted like a regular guy who this is his day job. This is nothing really that important to him. He's not this smart, suave, intelligent assassin. He's like a bumbling dude who might get it wrong at the end of the day. You know, like not what you'd normally expect. Well, it's also funny because like, okay, in terms of like how The Godfather is like kind of all about like, you know, does K know what's happening you know what I mean like and he's trying to like keep the, it separate or whatever like in this like you you see the home life it's like you see the wife and the kid and like and they're like oh you're not gonna be home to tuck him in or whatever and like it seems like oh it's very you know like he's doing this amazing job of like keeping them separate but then the hitman gets the information about where they are through the wife so is that meant to be that like she fully knows and is like helping, right? Are we meant to think that he calls and says like, hey, I'm a colleague of um, your husband's, like, do you know where he is? And like, and that she is just like, oh, this is where he is, they're at this movie. Yeah, I thought she was just relaying messages based on her reactions at the end. Cause at the end, she didn't really understand what was going on with Nikki. I will say, um, I wanna get back to that coffee scene really quick because that was what caused me to not trust Mikey um, or to be wary of Mikey. Uh, the scene when he goes to get the cream and violently, the man is going to give him the cream. He gets what he wants and he reacts with violence. No, that's a good point that it is to to focus on the fact that not only is it violence, but it's it's actually like counterproductive to his goal. He's like about to get his goal in the scene. And then he just is like, I'm now going to beat you up. Now that we're talking about it, what keeps appearing in the film is it's this contest to see if you can get exactly what you want. And then you get exactly what you want and it doesn't satisfy you. You're not satisfied, you mm. want more. It's constant, constant, constant. And so like even looking at Mikey's life, Mikey is jealous of Nikki and Mikey has everything. 
Mikey has a beautiful home. He has a wife who stayed up till 5 a.m. just to talk with him, just to hang out with him. She cares about him. He's got a kid that he loves. He's got a job that's secure. He has all of these things, but there's something that he's like, oh, I'm not satisfied because look, look at Nikki. Nikki gets everything and Nikki isn't satisfied. It, it's like this constant hunger that's never met. And I'm wondering if that is a comment on <laughs> toxic masculinity and how it's never fulfilled. You know, you're yeah. never satisfied because nothing's ever on a deeper level. Another like lens to kind of look at this is like, and I, I just watched A New Leaf for the first time. I have not seen, I've seen literally almost no other Elaine May film. Like it's like In terms of her as a director. Okay, so well, the Heartbreak Kid is also, it's like, those are such, they're just shot in such different ways. Like, and they're, they're comedies that are very much like comedies that like have some silliness to them. And like, they're just visually super different than this. So what I was learning about Elaine May today was basically that like A New Leaf was supposed to be 180 minutes. <laughs> the movie that was released was not her cut. And she was really upset about it. And she wanted her name removed from it because Paramount took ownership of it and wouldn't allow her cut to be made through. And that's what happened with this film as well. So with this movie, she didn't um, like get it into the studio on time. So the studio sued her and they took ownership of this film and she was not allowed to have final cut anymore. And so she, what she did for a while was, um, so the studio couldn't take ownership right away, she hid two canisters of the film in a friend of her husband's house in Connecticut because by New York law, they could not search a house in Connecticut. They couldn't leave the state. She eventually did hand the canisters back over to Paramount, but that was what she did for a while. And Paramount wanted to see this film fail. They were pissed at her. So what they ended up doing was they cut together a film that didn't end up making sense. They released it only for a few days and they kind of like tossed it aside. Critics hated it at the time. Um, and then in 1986, she, someone else along with her purchased the film. And I think John Cassavetes too. I think the three of them purchased the film from Paramount. She was able to re-edit it and then release a director's cut. And that got very well reviewed. And that's closer to what we saw today. What we saw today was another director's cut she did for John Cassavetes, like a tribute to him or like a festival for him. And that's what ended up on the Criterion channel. So this is the third director's cut of this It'd film. It'd be funny if you and I actually watched different versions. No, but I also saw it on Criterion. Yeah, so, so what Criterion channel owns is the third director's cut that Elaine May did. So she has actually edited this, but the film that was released in theaters was not this film and apparently didn't even make sense. Like they didn't even care. They did, they, it was released for days and then taken out so that they could fulfill their contractual obligation to her. And she was not given another director's job for 10 years because of this film. And then she eventually does Ishtar, which Funny, fails. Yeah. And then they're like, they're like, well, now you're really blacklisted. Like, cause yeah. that was the narrative I always had was that she was like a darling of the industry who then like once it was Ishtar, it was like, oh, well that's your one mistake, you know? And I, I don't like Ishtar. For people at home, Ishtar was a huge financial flop that was made in the eighties. It starred Dustin Hoffman but and Warren Beatty. But not even that much of a flop. I mean, financially like lost some money, but it, that's like a tall tale that's gotten exaggerated. So yeah, people are like, they just think of it as that. And so I, when I watched it, I was like excited to be like, oh, this is like probably actually good. Yeah. I've heard it's just fine. Like, it's not the worst movie ever made, but it's like, eh. Yeah, it's like these, like, two bumbling musicians. They're, they're like a, an act together 
who, yeah, like they end up getting involved in like this plot in um, the Middle East. And it went over budget because they shot it in Morocco. Like they shot far away on location. Like I just wish she had been given more of a chance because I'm sure she could have figured things out along the way. Like she, she's so talented. <laughs> she's so smart. Her two Oscars are for, yeah, they're for writing. It's for that and then Primary Colors, right? Yeah, both for writing nominations. But she's also such a good actor. Like, she's so fucking funny in A New Leaf. Like, she's just so weird and, like... But that's amazing that that was supposed to be a three-hour comedy. Like, that was always the plan. So she was working from a script based on that book, and it had extra really dark moments that were cut. There were two murders, I guess, that Walter Matthau does in her version that didn't end up making the final cut. I should also mention that movie went over budget as well. So all three of her films, well, well, but most whose films do. don't like, go that's over not budget. Unusual. Yeah, yeah, we're not going to blame that on her. This, the filmmaking, I think, is so much better. Like it's like you know the the film grain. Like you're talking about the the lighting being low. Like you really feel the 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 grittiness of the film and. And you're just close and it feels so real. Yeah, in a way where, yeah, the, her other films, they're much more heightened. The other films are like, they're making their points through jokes and they're funny, but this is just so different. So Nora Ephron, who is like, I love Nora Ephron. She is my like patron saint, um, but she made Silkwood, right? So she does so many great comedies, so many great romantic comedies, but she's all, she did Silkwood. And to me, this is like Elaine May's Silkwood. Do you know what I mean? Cool, Like, yeah. this is like that to me. Because the rest of her films, if you look at her filmography, especially with writing, a lot of them are comedies. Like, and even uncredited writing for comedies. Like, she uncredited wrote for Tootsie, and she adapted La Caja Fall to become The Birdcage, right? So she's so great at very intelligent comedies. But then to do something like this, that's so, such a hard left. And so, it's so masculine, I really feel. Like, it's such a... A unique film. I'm. I am really glad I watched it. Um, I did also write down. I love that she's exploring these things, but I love that these things aren't necessarily commonplace. Like I think it's really cool to watch in this film how no lighting comes from an unnatural source. You know, like if it's dark in the graveyard, it's dark in the graveyard. They're not going to make it light. Yeah. And if they're in the apartment and they close the window, you're going to lose the moonlight. Everyone's going to be in darkness. Like I like that she makes choices like that, but I also at the same time I'm glad that's not a choice for like every movie always. Like I do, I do love a good um, Hollywood lighting moment. So I think it's really cool for this tale. This is my favorite kind of cinematography. Well, and I get it. It's it's very visually cool to see. It's like a nice palette cleanser. It's like a nice. Having something different. But that was what I wrote. I wrote, I really like this, but I'm glad not all movies are like this. But I, I know what you mean about the whole thing being like kind of unpleasant. I like movies where you finish it and you're like, wow, okay, I'm glad that's not my life. You know what I mean? Like, Here's the problem. I'm glad you brought that up. So I come from a household where I was raised by someone who has NPD, narcissistic personality disorder. So right. for me, this is incredibly triggering. <laughs> like watching, okay. like I've yeah. watched shit like this. I don't need to watch it on screen. Yeah. No, for me, it's very like foreign. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I'm very lucky to be able to say that. The hardest part is so most people who have NPD are men. Um, it tends to be like a more <laughs> masculine issue and they don't get help for it ever because they don't view themselves as having problems ever. It's a constantly blaming kind of disorder. And there are a lot of men who have it are able to charm other men. 
And so a very frustrating point as a woman dealing with someone who has this issue is you can't really have them in your life because they don't heal. They don't ever, it's constantly just toxic and destructive. Yeah. They're good at making it. Maybe it seem like they have healed. Yeah. Yes. But they never do. And then um, they can charm everybody around them in particularly men into thinking that you are the crazy person that, you know, it's like, it's all about their image and all about how people kind of perceive them. That's what matters to them so much. And coming out on top, so like it matters. They will change reality around them. They will lie because in the moment it's not lying. In the moment to them, a lie is the truth because it puts them on top. And so watching Nikki was was disgusting to me. And watching men fawn over his behavior and want to emulate that behavior was really hard for me to watch. Because <laughs> I want to like rid the world yeah. of that behavior. And I grew up seeing a version of that behavior. Like I know my parent wasn't an alcoholic or anything, but like it was still, it's still hard to watch. But don't you feel like also, you said Nikki, but don't you also feel like Mikey, Mikey too, but Mikey doesn't have that charm. So for me, it was watching Nikki turn on the charm, watching a woman who said, get the hell out of my house. No, yeah. melt in his hands like putty was sick and disturbing to me. Watching a woman who didn't want to have sex with him say, no, 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 no. And then him being like, come on, baby. Like, and her being like, okay. Like to me, watching people cave in and lose themselves for this narcissist was really messed up. <laughs> I did not yeah. like it. <laughs> it's not a fun exploration for me. It's kind of like a, a reveal when you realize that he's a parent, right? Yes. A lot of stuff is, there's so many reveals that are interesting. The reveal of Mikey being a betrayer. And not. you're right. I think Peter Falk's performance is probably my favorite in the piece. It's so complex. Um, but I do love John. John Cassavetes has so much charm and magnetism to him. He's really good at turning on that, like, fire I think for some reason I'm like yeah Mikey is the one that charmed me as a as a viewer that that I was like ooh, like I was saying earlier like I was like is he bad and we're left with that at the end because it's like Nikki is so obviously bad right Nikki is like yeah he sucks he's bad but Mikey kind of goes both ways where you really want to like him but then he like he tries to potentially rape that woman as well he hits her like the woman who kisses him without his consent or without her, without his consent, without her consent slaps him and he hits her back. Like, like immediately. Yeah. And he has a wonderful wife at home, like waiting for him. So like he's clearly morally ambiguous. And I mean, he has his best friend murdered and looks upset and is upset and shocked by it, but allows it to happen. But that's the interesting thing of like going back to how we're introduced to him of like that amazing moment of like, the tenderness and stuff that I bought. So it's like, that reminded me of a thing that Chelsea Peretti once said, the comedian, where she was like, or I'm paraphrasing, but she says something of like, <laughs> sometimes feminist guys hate women the most. Quote unquote, feminist guys, yeah. What, and when I first heard that, I was like, what does that mean? But then yeah, it's like the ones that, sometimes the ones that seem, that, that are doing outward displays the most are the ones that are, you have to be the most suspicious of. Because it's a fake feminism. It's like they've perfected the outside of it. Yeah, because she's not saying those men were actually feminists. She's saying it's like the feminist facade that they put on because they know it will manipulate people into trusting them. It will manipulate a certain sense of, like a certain reaction. And, and not that that hugging moment is like feminist, but it's like tender and sweet. And he seems the opposite of toxic masculinity. But then, yeah, it's like, is that is that this like nuance of him? Or is it just like, no, that's... 
that's the facade. Now that we're talking about it especially, I'm really glad that I watched this piece. I think it was a really important piece to watch. But yeah, I was totally uncomfortable. And part of it is Peter Falk is so lovable. I mean, our generation knows Peter Falk from like Columbo, from being like this sweet ruffled detective. We know him from being the grandpa in The Princess Diaries. So to us, when you're watching Peter Falk, Mr. As You Wish, it's shocking <laughs> to see him in this light. Or not The Princess Diaries, The Princess Bride. I'm sorry, I said The Princess Diaries. I haven't seen The Princess Bride. Which stop everything, go watch it. Go watch it. I'm saying I came into this with very little Peter Falk baggage and was still very charmed by him. Okay, so he is just charming. It's that and it's that, yeah. Peter Falk, I found out today, was like a very interesting man. He, when he was three, he lost his eye through, there was like a sickness and he had to have his eye removed. So, I, I mean, I don't know if you noticed, he has a, a fake eye. Um, and I would notice it sometimes when he, you know, when he's doing different things, you're like, oh, that's the moment. But he, you barely notice it. And I think it makes him just so much more interesting personally. Um, so he has like one real eye and one fake eye. So he ends up being in the Merchant Marine because the Marines won't take him in World War II. And he sees a lot of the world. He's really into traveling. He does so many different things. Like he travels but has a bunch of different jobs that are like real person jobs. Like he like has a job at some sort of managing and analyzing and I don't know. And he decides, he does like a community theater production and is like, I like acting. So he lies to get into a professional acting class. Um, and tells them like he's a professional actor and they let him in and um, he's late every day. And they're like, dude, why are you late? And he's like, because I have a nine to five job. I didn't tell you guys, but I'm not really an actor. And his teacher is like, well, you should be. So he drops the nine to five, commits to being an actor. And like in a year, he's on Broadway. That is insane. It's just and he so, yeah, he's got a lot of natural talent. Um, he did a lot of stage work. They told him he would never be in movies because of his eye. So Harry Cohen was like the head of Columbia. And apparently Peter Falk, what I like about him too is he like failed a lot. I love people that fail and like thrive and rise up. Yeah. But he failed his Columbia screen test. And apparently Harry Cohen, the head of Columbia at the time, said, for the same price, I can get an actor with two eyes. That's pretty cringy. So like that's what he was up against. Some shitty judgment like that. Uh, but he ends up in 1960 having like a breakout role in this movie, Murder, Inc., where he plays a villain. He gets nominated for an Oscar for it. Um, he He's in Robin in the Seven Hoods with uh, Frank Sinatra, the Rat Pack. He plays one of the bad guys in that and has like a song and dance number. He's so interested because he does all these different things. I mean, he does Columbo for like four decades playing that role in various stages. But then he also works with John Cassavetes. He plays so many different kinds of characters. That's a little bit of Peter Falk, a little taste of Peter Falk. He seems like a very decent human. And that's all you can really ask for because so many people are terrible. He was married to one woman for a really long time and then died of Alzheimer's disease. Something he liked about working with Cassavetes and Elaine May was they, since they were directors that liked to keep the camera running, he felt less self-conscious because they wouldn't say cut. They'd come and talk to him. And so he would lose a little bit of like nerves or self-consciousness that comes with being on a set when people are like, cut, action. He didn't really have that because the camera would be going the whole time. It's so funny, like, hearing about that because, like, I've heard of how Orange the New Black, the way that they've shot is often with three cameras at once, is what I've heard. In a way, it's great because it's like, yeah, you're just getting all this stuff, like, in the real moment, you know? But it's all, I'm like, well, that's funny how 
you know, it's like TV has done like this full circle from like, it used to be live studio audience, three cameras and like live editing. And then it became like, no cinematic. And then it's back to this. And then I, you know, I've heard about how this movie um, BPM, have you seen it? About um, like AIDS activists in in France uh, in like 1990. Wait, is it a documentary film or is it like a- No, no, fiction, yeah. And like one of my favorite cinematographers shot it. She's French, so it's like, I'm gonna butcher her name, but Jeanne Lepoirie, I think is how you say it. I don't know, but whatever. So she used a lot of like two, or I, I think two or maybe three cameras for the like, and I was like, wow, like that's like groundbreaking, like, it's so cinematic and she was able to like light in a way where she was able to do that. So I thought of that as kind of this like new thing, but it's like, no, like Elaine May was doing it and was getting obviously like very different results in terms of what we see than like, I love Lucy. It seems pretty unique. Like I'm, I was surprised when you said that. I think that's so cool. As a director, like I love the idea of just like, you know, I, I love the way film looks, but I'm like, oh, well, the cool thing about digital is like, you can just roll and like, and you don't have to worry about it. But it's like, you know, she was doing film and she also wasn't worrying about how much film she was using. That's really the dream. And remember, she shot almost three times as more, three times more than Gone with the Wind, a three, four, no, a four hour film. Yeah. So that tells you how much she was shooting and what she was doing. I think it's a cool experiment. Like, I'm glad she did it. We can talk about John Cassavetes too, because... He's he's really interesting. Uh, he was married to Gina Rollins. They met in um, acting school. And apparently he went to acting school because all his friends were like, dude, there's so many girls here. You gotta come. And he does. And he meets his wife and they work together forever and work so well together. But yeah, he's really interesting too. I mean, there's a story about him where he like detested Strasbourg. Like he thought the method was really stupid and he... Cassavetes came up with his, his, like his own method of acting that was more character based and less method based because he was like the method is just like bad psychotherapy. That's something that always comes up is like is like oh my god like I feel bad for like the kids who like go to NYU Strasbourg school where it's just like your trauma is being used and then it's like I don't know if you're like someone who hasn't really had trauma <laughs> then you're kind of like well, better get some, you know. And it's not sustainable. I don't think it's a sustainable or healthy way to act. And I think it's it's just, I think it's kind of dumb. Plus, almost every human being I've ever met that was a method actor was a huge douchebag who was terrible to work with. So, like, I have no desire to work with or be a method actor. But um, I like that he also had disdain for them. He sounds, like, very confident in himself and um, very sure of himself. And he does give very raw performances um, and he's very interesting. And I like that he has a lot of respect for his wife. I really like that and her abilities. Like I like that he's not necessarily some sort of like macho misogynistic director that he could have been with that kind of personality. Do you know what I mean? In my opinion, it's like the thing that he did was like really, really respecting the actor and like kind of arranging everything else around that and just you know kind of structuring it in a way where it's like okay well this is only going to work this is only going to be interesting if the performances are good that kind of you know style of working or that mentality is like very inspiring to me as a director 
it's not that I don't have respect for cinematography if I'm saying like, yeah, let's move. Let's, if the actors have a different impulse, let's follow that. The more comfortable they are, then the, the more like, you know, weird and interesting, like you're going to get out of them. I want to dive in just to tell you about like real life Elaine May because she's so freaking interesting too. I said that about Peter Falk. He's very interesting and I think he's so good. And like, I normally don't really like respond to male actors. Like what I've always said is like, it's kind of like a mathematical equation. Most acting programs, including, you know, the very top programs like Juilliard or whatever, there's, there's like two women to every man. And then you look at the roles that exist in theater and in film, it's the, it's two to one men to women. So, you know, I'm not a math genius, but the, what I've always said is every, if you do the math there, if you pick out a random actress and a random male actor, on average, the woman's going to be four times, that, or, or who's working, you know, on average, the, the woman's going to be four times as good as the man, right? It's just simple math. So I, I really, I'm like, you know, I'm often bored by male performances, to be honest. Like I, but I do like Peter Falk. So he's actually, he's one of my few male or white male. It's I don't think of other male actors that I like even. And I feel like that's how I feel about stories about like straight, cis straight white men. Yeah. Is, is like, you remember in um, Beaches when Bette Midler's mom is just like, I want to pay attention to you, baby. I want to, I just can't, <laughs> I can't anymore. And I think, yeah, it's like, I'm just full. But I right. think what he brings to this is it's interesting and he's he has like a human quality. It's not about like, look at me, do this incredible thing. It's like, I'm a human being in this complex situation and you see my little brain thinking. And I think he's someone that doesn't seem toxic. So when he has explosions or like slaps that woman, it's like, that is so jarring to you. There's like this realisticness to how a manipulative person functions. But wait, so sorry. So you, I'm like, no, yeah. no, all I was going <laughs> to talk about before was Elaine May, but this was all really interesting to hear. And even like a film nerd like me, I, 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 I'm sure I'm going to learn something from what you're about to say, even though I think of myself as a super fan, you know. Like I knew who Elaine May was, but I don't think I knew a ton about her until today. I mean, again, Heaven Can Wait is probably the film of hers I've seen the most. And I I enjoy it a lot. I think it's really sweet I haven't fun. seen that. Isn't that crazy? But it's so, it's like not exactly your kind of film. Like it's so my kind of film. Um, but this she wrote and directed. And A New Leaf she wrote and directed. She, she doesn't like to say she directed it because she didn't get the final cut. But anyway, her, so her story, her parents are actors. Her dad's a theater director too. She they do like a Yiddish theater company thing. And she grows up on the road touring with this company, like acting on stage with her parents. Before she was 10 years old, she had gone to 50 different schools. Her dad ends up dying when she's 11 years old and her or 10 years old. Um, and then the, her, uh, her mom moves them to Los Angeles. She drops out of high school at the age of 14. She was in Hollywood High School, by the way. And she gets married to a man named Marvin May at the age of 16 years old. So Elaine May is married at 16, um, which is just you know astonishing to me. know how he was? Oh, that's a great question. I didn't even look it up, but I bet he was older. This is all new tracks. information to me. Like Yiddish theater companies, like 
So they were touring across America? Yeah, so she was going all over America and wasn't staying any place long enough to really go to school anyway. And she was acting in the productions. Is she fluent in Yiddish? I don't know. There's so many great questions coming out. I don't know. Yeah. What I do know is that her marriage obviously eventually dissolves <laughs> and she ends up in Chicago. And the reason she ends up at the University of Chicago is because she doesn't need a high school diploma to go there. At the University of Chicago, that's where she meets uh, Mike Nichols and they meet through the Compass Players. Well, they meet before then, but they get to know each other at the Compass Players, which is an improv group at that school. Um, they realize that they're awesome partners together and do great comedy together. And all of the articles about her school are basically like, everybody worshipped Elaine May. Everybody. Like, she was the coolest. She would, quote unquote, hold court. Like, people would just come and sit and listen to her stories of her days, like, growing up in the Yiddish theater. Um, and they all say she was, like, just so brave and so bold and, like, fearless. She just sounds so cool. Um, and she's kind of, like, the driving force of Nichols and May, right? Like I said earlier, she's kind of the adventurous, out there, bold one. And Mike Nichols is more of, like, the structured one. Um, so they work really well together. They actually get kicked out of their comedy group because, quote unquote, they were too good. They were like stealing all the limelight. So they go off on their own. They become Nichols and May. They become famous for doing comedy. They're a team for four years. Their show is sold out in New York like every night. Um, and they do this inventive new style, essentially, which is improv work that becomes sketches. And they aren't like previous comedy teams because it's not like one is smart and one is dumb they put on characters together and do like a scene as equals together. And Elaine May often plays like doctors and therapists. Like she plays intelligent women in their sketch comedy. And they influence like Lily Tomlin and Steve Martin and people like that. Um, but yeah, they were doing something that kind of really hadn't been done in comedy before. They were trailblazers. Um, and Mike Nichols obviously goes off to become a director. When they break up, he said he felt just like depressed and kind of didn't know where to go next because she was such a driving force. Um, and she really just wanted to explore everything. Like he he wanted to be just like a director and she was like, I want to write and I want to make plays and I want to direct and I want to do all of these things. And and she does. She goes off and does those things. It It's like rare for someone. I mean, there's a lot of people who, you know, have, have like written and also directed and acted, but she's so good at each of the things. Yeah. She studied acting with Maria Uspenskaya, too. She's like a famous Russian woman. I wrote that down. It's important to to, to remember like this thing of her holding court or whatever um, when you see a new leaf, because she she's like playing such an eccentric character in that. And I just I find it so cool that like that's like the vehicle that she wrote for herself is like this. It, it, it's like so different from like every other like example of like a comedian writing like a vehicle for themselves. So she didn't actually write it for herself. She wanted it to be someone else and the studio wouldn't let her cast. I forget who it was now. She wanted someone else to be in it. And yeah, they were like, nope, you can keep doing it. And by the way, we're not going to pay you more. You're still getting the same amount you were going to get paid, but you also have to be in your movie. Cool, thanks. Well, it all worked out because she's great. Um, I also do want to say for one year, she was married to Sheldon Harnick of Harnick and Bach, the famous songwriting duo that wrote Fiddler on the Roof. What? Yeah. So I I was tickled by that. I saw him. I was like, Sheldon Harnick of Harnick and Bach? Yeah. I mean, like, come on, Fiddler. They wrote Fiorello, too. 
and the apple tree and just so many things. I'm trying to think of anything else. I mean, her her final husband, she loved very much. Oh, and another fun thing. She was married to her third husband for a long time until he passed away in the 80s. But she was the partner of the great Stanley Donnan, who directed Sigan in the Rain. They were partners from 1999 to 2019 when he died. I also did not know that. Wait, wow. I didn't know it until today. But I was like, oh my god, Stanley Donnan and you together. Ah. Oh, and I hear she's going to direct again. That's what people are saying. So Lily Tomlin said she was inspired by Nichols and May because they were the first people I saw doing smart, hip character pieces. Well, yeah. And like I, 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 as a child, again, like was exposed to their vinyl record or vinyl records, one of them. And I, yeah, I was told like this was improvised. But I guess like that, I mean, is that actually true? Or is it like they developed scenes through improv? But I mean, either way, it's like impressive because they don't, they, they feel very much like written, you know? It sounds like Nichols wanted to know where the scene would end up. So they'd have an established, this is where it's going to end up. And I guess when it did get to like Broadway and stuff, it was more of the same thing kind of every night. But um, he would let Elaine explore during the way, you know? So right. it would be... It was improvised when they first like set down the sketches. I think it's kind of probably like what Second City does, right? But Second City does the same thing every night, so I don't know. Um, but I think Elaine May would wiggle around a bit. So it would we know we're gonna end up here, but she'd find the freedom in the space to kind of do her own thing. Uh, but it sounded like she was kind of frustrated towards the end of doing the same thing every night. Like she said she would find her own way to make it new for herself, but it sounded like if you're doing a sketch show for four years on Broadway and you know it's going to end up here, how many times can you get to that place and have it feel spontaneous and creative, I guess? I just like how bold she is, too, of like being so advocating for that because they were a hit. They could have done that forever. And she was kind of like, no, I want to go off and explore. Yeah, like we've done this. Um, I want to talk about the the supporting cast. Um, specifically, I loved Carol Grace, who played Nellie. That was the woman we mentioned earlier who, like, had the really uncomfortable consent scenes. She's fantastic in this. And, oh, and Sanford Meisner, the famous acting teacher, has, like, a very small bit part in this. He plays the mob boss. That's Sanford Meisner. Oh, my God. Yeah, like, founder of the group theater. Um, one of them. But, yeah, so Sanford Meisner makes a brief appearance. Um, Carol Grace was great. She didn't do a lot, but um, she was married to Walter Matthau. And I think that's why she was cast in this because of A New Leaf. Um, I think that's how she, Elaine May became aware of her. Yeah. And Joyce Van Patten played Nikki's wife. And I thought she was great in this too. I think all of the women were really solid in this. Um, and Rose Arick played Annie and she was also in A New Leaf and Ishtar. So I feel like she must have been good buddies with Elaine May. But yeah, Joyce Van Patten is like in a million movies, right? Isn't she someone who's like... Yeah, she's in a lot of movies. Up until like fairly recently. Like she was in an Adam Sandler movie like a decade ago. Yeah, no, she's like still alive and... The Bad News Bears she was in. St. Elmo's Fire! She's like a character actor, like legend. And she was great in this performance. I thought I loved, with both women, I loved how... They had similar intentions of like, I'm not going to let you do this to me. And they had different ways of fronting it. So like Joyce Van Patten, who's playing Nikki's wife, Jan, she is so strong. She is so solid when we first see her. And she's like, you're not coming in this house. Absolutely not. He forces his way in. She's so strong that you don't expect her to melt. But then even um, Carol Grace, she's the one who played um, Nellie, the other woman. She's so soft. 
and she, you expect her more to melt, but it's like the two women are so different and yet both can't resist him. And I just thought that was really, really fascinating. But Carol Grace is heartbreaking. Like the scene after he like has sex with her in front of his friend um, and like gets up and she gets up and kind of smooths out her dress. And it's, she hears them talking about her in the background because it's like a shot where they're kind of really far in the background and she's more in the foreground. And she hears what they're saying about her. And what Nikki is saying to his friend Mikey is basically like, she's a slut. She slept with all these guys. Why are you? I warmed her up for you. Don't you want to go have sex with her? Like he's turning it into this disgusting contest. She's within earshot and she's just like composing herself. It's this heartbreaking, heartbreaking moment. And every time Nikki tries to kiss her and she says, no, you promise. No, I don't want you to. No, you said you wouldn't. Oh, your heart just goes out to her. And the she wants to be valued yeah, for her brains. Like she she wants to hear about what's going on in Indochina. I read in an article today where it was so depressing because you see her want for connection, like what she's willing to give up and risk just to have connection, that character. And I went, oh my God, you're right. All Nikki has to do is say that he loves her and she's like, okay, I'm, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And I thought that was just heartbreaking. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah. And then when Mikey does the thing where he's like, I love smart, pretty girls. It's so great when girls are smart and pretty. And you're like, ew, this is toxic and gross too. <laughs> like All the women in this, like they do, they, they, they make an impression in like pretty small amount of screen time. Even Mikey's wife, when he's like, didn't you hear me? I was just telling you about my brother that died and how he lost his hair. And she was like, I'm sorry, it's five in the morning. I forgot for a moment. I'm sorry. Yeah, she's amazing. They're yeah. All really good, really solid performances. Yeah, I mean, I guess like I want to talk about how this movie is like, it's like I'm, you know, as a filmmaker, people have said, you know, oh, like your films are very theatrical. And sometimes like they mean that as kind of like a dig you know, like an insult. I always take it as a compliment because like, I think it's so interesting how, you know, some of the films that I love the most, like you think about like Steve McQueen's movie, Hunger, like not based on a play, but has a 21 minute two character scene. And it's just one single shot. And it's like, that's both very theatrical, but also very cinematic. And it feels different than it would feel on, on a, in a play. And yeah, I think like that in a, in a great way, this feels very theatrical to me and it almost feels like a two-hander in a way. Like a lot of it's like long scenes between the two of them. It's very dialogue driven and I love that about it. And I think that it's like a good, but it's, it's also again, very cinematic. Like it's very, like she's, you know, bringing us close in on this in a way that you wouldn't be in a play. And, um, and obviously, yeah, the way that it was constructed with the various, you know, cameras, obviously that it's like that, it, that lends itself to constructing it in the edit. It does remind me in a great way of like two character plays. It has that feeling. Like it really does. And I, I wonder if it's because Elaine May was a playwright as well. Like she knew how to write for stage and screen. So I wonder if that is kind of why we might feel that way. The way it's cinematic is just by placing them in these different locations and by making the location be, it's like part of Nikki's quirk is he can't seem to focus on one thing. Like Peter Falk is just trying to get him to one single place so he can be still long enough to be killed. Yeah. And Nikki can't do that. He constantly has to divert and go to all these different places and go on all these different adventures. So that's, I think, why it works cinematically. Like there's like a thing sometimes in plays where you could just tell that like, this is the only set we're gonna see. So then when they're like, they're like, well, let's leave. You're like, well, they're not gonna leave. Like. 
in this, it's like they're on the bus, they're going to the movies, and then he's like, let's get off now. Like, you know. And his interaction with the bus driver is like Mikey's interaction with the cream. Yeah, because that's like Nikki who kind of really instigates that. And I'm realizing it's also two men that are saying no to them. In each scene, it's a man saying no to them or I'm not going to fulfill your request. I'm not going to do it the way you want. You have to take the back exit. You can't take the front exit. And they, yeah, they can't handle that. And they lash out. And they get their way anyway. (laughs) Both of them get their way anyway. Oh my God. And we haven't even gotten into the scene where they go into a bar that's like all black people. They are having a great time. They are dancing. They are living their lives. And Nikki comes in and just is racist and is terrible and like starts shit. And the black people, you even see it then. They can't even do anything about it because they know if they attack him, he's a white man. Like we see it in that. (laughs) Don't they think that both of them are cops? They're like, they're undercover cops, right? Oh, maybe that would explain it. Either way, it's like they, yeah. So then there's this thing where he's like, well, I'm going to buy this woman a drink or whatever. And she's like, she can't say no because like he might freak out or something. And then the boyfriend of that woman is like, okay, well, that's my girlfriend. But also like, I don't want you to kill me. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I would give props to Elaine May for like basically just being like, bringing into the story like, yeah, these people are also racist. Like that's not like glossing over that aspect. That was heartbreaking for me to watch too. Especially Nikki, right? Like that's, he's really the aggressor in that. He's the aggressor. And they, there are men that have to like pull back. I don't know his character's name, but like the black man that's talking, they have to be like, no, you're gonna get hurt. No, like they're like apologize to Like they're being so disgustingly nice to Nikki because they're afraid for their lives. And Nikki is being nothing but a monster. So it's like, that was hard to watch. Right, they're like, let's not escalate. It was just, I was watching going like, oh no, oh my God, this is just like now. It was a disgusting like power trip of Nikki. And it actually feels, cause it's like often in movies from, you know, before 20, 16 like there's like things where you're like oh yeah like the way that this dealt with race it's like the director feels racist well yeah and it's it's showing off another disgusting aspect of nikki's character she shows us every gross thing about he says something like very overtly like aggressively racist i actually think that's the moment where because it's pretty early on yeah one of the first places they kind of end up in but that yeah it's like if i had any sympathy for nikki before that or was like worried about him then it was all completely lost then so that's the interesting thing is that then i guess then my mind goes to like well i guess my sympathy is more with mikey but you know it's not not really there either well because that's around the point when you start to go oh i don't think i'd mind if you died that's that's (laughs) like that moment you're like oh wait because at first you're on nikki's side you're like oh my God, he's saying he's telling the truth and that he never took this money from the mob. And you're kind of like, okay, I'm willing to, I see that you're really upset. I'm willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. That scene happens and you're kind of like, fuck you. And then even like just throughout more and more, you're like, oh, I'm totally fine with you being shot. Which is funny. It's funny that it's still able to like, because yeah, most movies or whatever that like kind of hinges on like a plot like that it is all about you being like, oh my God, I hope that our hero survives. And yeah, it's actually interesting that I literally like 15 minutes into this like hour 45 minute movie 
am like, no, I actually don't. I don't care about you. But I, but I'm like intrigued by this whole thing, and I'm gonna, you know, keep watching. But, but yeah, you're right. I, I did not actually care whether, yeah. One of the things I kept asking throughout my notes, I was like, I don't understand why you're friends. I get that you have a history. I get it. I get that it's important. Like the fact that they're together. But they're like not. Because it's like they grew up together. It's like, he's like, he's the only person that knows or that knew my dad and my brother. And Mikey is a manipulator. So you think because both of them are manipulators that that story isn't necessarily the weight we're giving it. He's there tonight because he's fucking with him, you know? It's funny how like we started off in this conversation where I was like, I was like, well, like Mikey does love him. And now I'm just like, no, this is how manipulators function, Sarah. Cause yeah, wait, what is it? They like grew up together or something? Like it's that they grew up together from childhood. He's like, he knows he's the only person that knows my dad, that knew my mom, that knew my brother that died. Yeah. But Nikki's mocking the brother that died and laughing over the grave. So you're like, well, how important if, is this shared history if it's not shared? And it's interesting to know they even throw in at the last minute Pepper in the fact that like, oh, my father, I wasn't even his first choice. He preferred my younger brother that passed away. And he also preferred Nikki to me. They like kind of throw that in at the end. I love, I mean, I love 11th hour exposition. Yeah, we got a little 11th hour exposition of why that watch was so damn important to him. His dad gave it to the younger brother, the younger brother died and then it was given to him. So not only is he the survivor, but he's the second choice. And he's the second choice in every relationship that Nikki is involved in. That brings us to the fight. They have a big throwdown fight where all of the information comes out about what they each think of the other person. I think it's an exemplary, exemplary example, uh, exemplary example of um, combat on film. Like I think so often fight scenes rely on like a lot of like cuts, but it, it's pretty like one a single like extended. It feels very real. It feels very like it has like no like you know action starness to it, but it feels real and like. It feels like they, uh, both of them could kill the other at any moment, you know? So there is like stakes in that regard where you're like, whoa. Yeah, I think it's a great like action scene. Because of the realism. Because we're so used to choreographed Marvel. Not that those are bad, but that's what we're used to. Violence that has like a ballet vibe to it. My favorite part was when Peter Falk fell for real. You could tell that Peter Falk, the actor, really slips and really falls down. It feels so real. I love that aspect of it completely. The the focus on realism throughout. Because again, I don't want it in every single film. I still do want my escapism. But in this particular film, I appreciated all of the glimpses of realism that we got. Yeah, it's like if you're going to do it, do it. And to me, it made the watch breaking even more point. Like, I was brokenhearted for him when his watch broke. I knew how that would feel of like this thing that means so much to me that I can never get back, that you don't even care or understand the meaning of. You just broke and I can't get it back. And Nikki was like, I'll buy you a new watch. Why do you even, like, what does it even matter? <laughs> what? I don't care. Nikki is such an asshole. I can't, over and over. I think of him as, like, um, the species, like, before, like, when dinosaurs were, like, turning into birds or something. You know what I mean? Like, he's, like, a prehistoric alpha male, and that's all. He's just, like, rotten to his core. God, he's the worst. I actually, like, wonder if, like, a different actor could have made me 
see things from his side more or something because I I, I kind of don't with him. I don't think we need to because otherwise we can't accept his death. Mikey's story is caught in between. I think Mikey is caught in between going one way or the other, going the way of Nikki, which is like a toxic masculine show off kind of way versus like actually living a good life. Like it could go either way for him. And I think he's kind of torn between the choosing of it. The things that Nikki doesn't like about Mikey are all shallow, stupid things. Like his arguments in the fight are just to hurt him on a shallow level of like, they call you the echo because you repeat yourself a lot. No, your <laughs> boss doesn't like you because you're obnoxious. Like his shit is stupid. Whereas Mikey's like, you don't care about anyone but yourself. You hurt me consistently. Like his things are pretty valid. Whereas Nikki's are all incredibly like shallowly based. And so I think it's like almost the war, the movie ends up being the war between Nikki inside of himself of do I want to be more like Nikki and be the guy who gets all the girls and has all the money? Or do I want to be like this guy who has a beautiful home and appreciates it? And maybe on the bigger picture, it's the battle maybe every cis straight white man has within himself. And I will never know because I am not a cis straight white man. But maybe it's like the battle in yourself of do I want to go the toxic masculine route or do I want to be more vulnerable and go deeper and have like a more meaningful, fulfilling life on a different level. And one of those two things is kind of the default. And then, and one is, is the thing that you actually have to swim upstream to, yeah. Cause like I was saying earlier, to me, this doesn't feel like a gangster film. It feels like a film about relationship, masculinity, like that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I just, I, I think that it, it engages with very similar themes in a way that I like, in a way that it feels very like trusting the audience to like get it. It's like interesting how like a, there are a lot of examples of women getting accolades for the movies that they've made about men. You know, yeah. the first woman who won the Oscar for directing. Hurt Locker. It's a movie, it's all men. It's almost like, okay lady, you can speak our man language and talk like that. So right. In. She's not like other girl directors. Um, like, I think The Hurt Locker is great, you know? But I also kind of feel like there's like a vibe, I think a little bit of sometimes when people talk about like Annie Baker's play The Aliens of kind of like, oh, wow, like, yeah, it's like all dudes, you know, whatever. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I, I love that play. I also like love her plays like that are about like women, you know? The only thing we didn't bring up in Mikey and Nikki that I want to make sure we cover before we're done is the very final scene of the shooting. Because to me, that is such a meaningful moment of Nikki for maybe the first time in, in their relationship or ever has shown up at Mikey's house for a change. The way it works is when Nikki needs Mikey, he calls him and he never pays him the same respect. Like he doesn't call Mikey back. He doesn't really care about Mikey very much. At the end of the movie, when he's worried he's going to be killed, he stops, to, you know, he goes to Mikey's house and the hitman is circling the block, you know, waiting for, he, they assume he's going to show up at Mikey's. And Mikey doesn't let him in. And not only does he not let him in, he pushes two like chairs against the door and him and his wife push against the chairs so Nikki can't break in. Because as we had seen earlier in the movie, several times Nikki has broken into the women in his lives house. Um, if they open the door for him with the chain on the door, he knows how to push past it so the chain breaks. Like Nikki breaks in. And so this is the time he's like really, really not allowed in. And we see Nikki get shot. But what's astonishing, the moment that you wait for, the moment that hits you is Mikey's face, the shot of Mikey's face when he knows what's going on. It's such an interesting moment. What did you think of all of that? Yeah, I mean, from a filmmaking perspective, it's interesting because like if I remember correctly, like a lot of it, it is a little bit more from the perspective of 
Mikey and his wife than it is of Nikki. We're not sure how Mikey feels, I think. Like, we see his shock, but we're not totally sure. It's like technically like his goal for like the night. That was like the point and he's gonna get like paid. I guess I felt like the look on his face, a lot of it is like, ugh, that's terrible that like my wife has to like hear this. Cause for her, she's she's like a normal person, right? Like there probably is like mixed feelings about their relationship and all of that. Sure, that's the whole thing. But there's also a thing of like, damn, that's traumatizing for you. Where like, I don't, yeah. And I think in an ideal world, it would have been very like hermetically separated from his like home life. It was such a beautiful acting moment from Peter Falk. Cause I, you're, it's both so expressive, but you're not sure of the specific emotion. It's like a really great contrast of everything. The whole thing is subtle. We're gonna do the double feature portion of our program. That's when we say, if you liked this, check this out. For me, if you're doing like an Elaine May double feature, since I mentioned before, I haven't seen a ton of her films. I loved Heaven Can Wait. I think it's fun. I don't know that it pairs tonally with this, but if you're like, I wanna watch Elaine May, I liked it. But I imagine um, even The Heartbreak Kid or A New Leaf would just be fun to watch two films she directed. So maybe check those out for an Elaine May double feature. And then um, tonally, weirdly enough, I was feeling um, this would actually pair well with Girlfriends, which is like the female kind of realistic version of filmmaking by a female director. So I kind of feel like that would be a cool double feature. Yeah, they're in a city. And it's about like their relationship changing and, and the one being kind of lost and figuring out her path. And then, I mean, Mean Streets, I think, would probably work well with this. Um, I wrote My Dinner with Andre would pair well with this because it's like just an abstract, slow, weird conversational film. Between two men, that's a great, that's very theatrical. But what are your double features that you would put? I hadn't thought about this, but I'm now thinking of a, a pretty contemporary film called Beach Rats that is like another kind of look. It's a kind of contemporary look, at, I would say, toxic masculinity and someone's a young person struggling with a, a pretty specific um, thing. And yeah, and just beautiful, like, again, shot on film, like very realistic filmmaking and, you know, Lars von Trier movies and stuff. I think there's a lot where they don't actually adhere to the, the full set of rules. You know, what would be the most like pure version of a film? So like no music, it's like if there's music, it has to be like the people, the actors are playing a, gu a guitar, you know? I think Suzanne Beer's like a really interesting, has a really interesting career. And like, I think Bird Box is like an excellent film and like is able to be accessible to like a wide audience. And so it's like, yeah, okay, this is like, she's like, you know, ticking off those Hollywood boxes, but it's also, I think really good. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great to have you. Here. Thank you so much for having me. We'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Jeremy Hirsch. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even contribute to the podcast on our page at anchor.fm. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me. Thanks for listening. <laughs>